Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the World Footprints Radio Book Club. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. If you think you know New York, chances are you probably haven't seen that great city through the eyes of Dorothy Parker. Until now. Author Kevin Fitzpatrick... No relationship to us that we know of, but Kevin takes us on a journey into Dorothy Parker's colorful career and intense personal life in New York with today's book club reading, A Journey into Dorothy Parker's New York. Kevin helps readers experience the edgy mood of the city during Dorothy's time, and he generously shares a treasure trove of photos, art, and street maps. Kevin Semper Fi, and thank you for joining us on today's World Footprints Radio Book Club. Thanks for having me on. I'm just so excited, and thank you for uh, letting Dorothy Parker take over your show for the uh, for the time today. It's our pleasure, and you know, but I'm curious with all the great talent that New York has birthed or claimed, why your focus on Dorothy Parker? Well, I just I like her um, first as a writer. I, I think that um, things that she wrote. Um, so many years ago are still um, still uh, popular and have a lot of relevance today. I like the era she was in. I love Jazz Age New York, um, the music, the fashion, the style, the, the whole milieu of what was going on in New York at the time. And I also like, you know, what she stood for. Um, she was very strong-minded. She believed in social justice. Um, but she was also very, you know, fun and witty and very clever, too. So I think all those things together. I'm making a big Dorothy Parker fan. Mm-hmm. This is your second edition print. How many years transpired between the first and second edition, and what new discoveries did you make the second time around? Uh, there's about six years um, between the two when the first the first edition came out. Um, with any kind of travel book, you always want to keep it updated. You know, businesses close. Um, transit stations move, um, things like that, but also gave me a chance to add a lot of photos and artwork um, that weren't available to me um, six, seven years ago when I was doing the research, particularly um, images of old New York City that were on glass plate negatives at the Library of Congress um, that have been digitized. So I swapped out some about 50 pictures and um, took new ones of um, some of the places um, a few of the um, locations in the book, there's about 100 locations in the book. Um, a few of them are updated and um, um, new information added to. When I received your book, I don't see this as a typical travel guide book. I love how you fuse history uh, with basic travel information, but it's not a general go-to place or like general travel guide that, that points you to specific places for you know a specific um, uh, say restaurant uh, that serves Italian food or, or anything of that sort. And, and so I love how 
your style has really created an artwork. Thanks very much for, for pointing out. I mean, I work in Times Square. I work on, actually work on 44th and Broadway, and I, so I see tourists every day when I, when I go to work um, for my day job. And one thing about New York City is no matter where you're standing, something was going on over the last 400 years. And even if you are, think you know where you are, you might not really realize that, you know, the, the restaurant you're looking at used to be a theater or um, this part of Manhattan, you know, used to be a swamp. And, you know, that's why there's no skyscrapers in it. And so walking around Manhattan, even if you've been there many, many times, there's always something new. and There's always something you, get, you might not have known about that took place in that particular spot. And that's what I tried to pack into the book. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to ask you to uh, read a, a passage from your book and, and set it up for us, Kevin. Sure. Well, one of the things um, about Dorothy Parker is there's a lot of famous writers from New York, of course, and a lot of people that went to New York to make their fame and fortune that people know about. But I think Parker, um, unlike a lot of others, is really of the city, and I don't think that you could have put her in other cities if she had been born in Kansas City or something. I don't think the same kind of writer would have come about, and I think that her writing is so infused in the city that when you read her her poems or her short fiction, they are so of Manhattan, and you can just picture the taxi cabs and the speakeasies and the bootleggers and things and the couples having arguments just come right off the page with her. So what this is about, this little section from the first chapter, is is really setting the scene about uh, Dorothy Parker in New York. Few of the writers have portrayed any city with as much keen and insightful detail as Dorothy Parker did when writing of Manhattan. She belongs to an impressive club of New York City writers, Edith Wharton, Walt Whitman, Herman Melville, Zora Neale Hurston, J.D. Salinger, native sons and daughters who evoke, through their work, a city that is as live and vibrant today as when they penned their words. In Dorothy Parker's New York, the speakeasies are always hopping, the party is just beginning, and all the taxicabs hold couples on their way to an affair. Dorothy Parker herself was a Manhattan confection, equal parts bootleg scotch, Broadway lights, speakeasy smoke, skyscraper steel, streetcar noise, and jazz horns. She was a product of the city struggling economically, on the verge of enormous power and influence. Dorothy, the precocious offspring of a Jewish father and a Protestant mother, would not have been comfortable in turn-of-the-century Los Angeles with its dirt roads and deplorable culture. Chicago at the time was a cow town, a place of stockyards, not sophistication, and puritanical Boston certainly had no room for the likes of her. You're listening to the World Footprints Radio Book Club. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick, and I'm joined by author Kevin Fitzpatrick, who just read a passage from his book, A Journey into Dorothy Parker's New York. I have to say, I love Dorothy Parker, and unbeknownst to me, I guess I've been channeling her a lot over the years um, with, you know, when I exclaim, you know, what the hell? <laughs> Which I know <laughs> is a phrase attributed to, to her. Your book is part of the Art Place series. Tell us a little bit about that series and how you became involved with it. Sure. I, I'm very, very pleased to be part of the Art Place series. Um, my book was the first in the series. It's the brainchild of Roaring Forties Press in Berkeley, California. And what they do is they take a writer and artist and really bring you into that world. So what the Art Place series does is it takes the traveler or the armchair traveler, you don't even need to leave your house, into the world of that writer or artist through pictures, maps, and stories. 
We've been talking to author Kevin Fitzpatrick about his book, A Journey into Dorothy Parker's New York, and we're also joined by two listener reviewers who have enjoyed learning more about Dorothy Parker's New York. I'm pleased to introduce uh, Karen Powell, an attorney and freelance writer from Maryland. Thank you for joining us, Karen. You're quite welcome. And I'd also like to introduce Sigrid Rich, also an attorney and creative writer from Maryland. Hi, Sigrid. We have a lot of, uh, you know, legal creative talent on this show today. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Tanya. Karen, it's, it's a pleasure to meet you. Um, what is your comment or question for Kevin? I um, enjoyed, first of all, reading the book. Um, I didn't read it as a traditional book. I found myself going back and forth, um, just enjoying the pull-outs from the info boxes, and I'm wondering what would be the most frequent question that people come away with um, about Dorothy Parker? I think the number one question people ask is, why do I think that she is still read today and why is she still in print? And I think part of it is the things she wrote about in the 20s and 30s are, are, are things that still people care about today. I mean, getting your heart broken, it doesn't matter if it was written in 1929, it's still a, a, appropriate in 2013. Um, she was writing about bad bosses and bad relationships and um, jerks and bigots, and uh, we certainly still have a lot of those around today. And so I think that's why she is still popular. Sigrid, uh, what are your thoughts about a journey into Dorothy Parker's uh, New York, and, and what questions do you have for Kevin? Hi, Kevin. Um, I really enjoyed your book. I was not familiar with Dorothy Parker uh, prior to reading, um, and she certainly is um, quite an interesting, entertaining um, character as well as a writer and social activist. But my question is, um, if she were alive today, um, what neighborhood in New York would inspire and excite her, do you think? Would she still be a Manhattanite, or would she um, perhaps venture into Brooklyn or um, some other part of, a, of the growing and changing New York present today? We know that's a fantastic question, and you know your stuff because, you know, Parker um, grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, which is pretty much unchanged from when she lived here. Unlike the Upper East Side, which keeps getting demolished and remade and um, you know redeveloped, um, most of Dorothy Parker's former apartments are still around on the West Side. Um, but I think you're right. If she was just starting out today and she was 28 years old. She probably would live in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, or around Park Slope. Um, Brooklyn is, is the happening uh, community for uh, young, creative people. Um, even if she was still born on the Upper West Side, she probably would have not liked to live in such a residential area. And, you know, that part of Brooklyn is, is really hopping with a lot of um, great places to hang out. And also Brooklyn is the home of the new Dorothy Parker American Gin, um, which debuted about a year and a half ago in Williamsburg. And there's actually a distillery um, right on the border of Williamsburg and Greenpoint. And they're open for tours. You can actually take a tour and watch uh, gin and whiskey be distilled. And they have a little place next door to, to sample it, too. So it's, it's a great uh, tour. Um, but I, I think um, it's a good question. I, I think that she would have fit in uh, probably to Brooklyn or maybe Astoria, Queens, with the great, you know, great diners and fantastic restaurants and just off the subway right there. You know, I, I have to admit, I didn't know very much about Dorothy Parker. I, I hadn't read any of her writings, really, Kevin, and, um, but I, 
have become intrigued uh, because of this book. And I'm curious, I want to ask uh, Karen in secret, how much of about Dorothy Parker did you ladies know before reading this book? Karen? I didn't really know much about Dorothy Parker before reading the book. I knew who she was, but I hadn't explored her writing. And I think one of the things that I really appreciated in the book were the excerpts from her poetry, which made it just a, made her more concrete for me, even with the places that she visited and lived, knowing um, or having her words as well. I'm glad you said that because um, I was originally hesitant to put in passages of her work because I, as I explained to my editor, I always thought that people would that would buy this book would already own her books of poetry and short fiction, and there's a book called The Portable Dorothy Parker, which is kind of like her greatest hits. I thought this would be a, com- a companion to it, but I'm glad you said that because this this is um it, the, I put like a little doses in to give you a flavor of her writing. Sigrid, how how did you know about Dorothy Parker before reading this book, or how much did you know about her? Um, I honestly didn't know anything at all about Dorothy Parker, um, and I'm surprised I hadn't come across her. Um, in my, I was an English major and um, never came across uh, any, any of her work. Um, but after reading the book, I'm, I'm very inspired to go and learn more about her. I'm planning a visit to New York later on this month, so I'll be sure to uh, kind of walk in her footsteps while I'm up there. But um, I found her, after reading the book, um, just to be a multi-layered uh, woman with so much um, uh, of her life being inspired by or just highly affected by the way she grew up, um, kind of got a sense that she was an outsider and just had this restlessness about her. Like It felt like her life was in constant, constant transition. And um, I was really struck by the amount of political activism that she was involved in. And I was just I wondering if she were alive today, what causes would um, would earn her activism? I well, you know, because you guys all live in Baltimore, you have a, a greater tie to Dorothy Parker than a lot of other cities because her remains are interred there at the NAACP headquarters, um, which is a which ties into their politicalism because um, no spoilers here, she left her state to Dr. King. Right. Um, a man she never meant, but she was a strong believer in social justice, and that's why she left her her estate to him. And then when he was assassinated 11 months later, the estate rolled over to the NAACP, and that's why her um, ashes end up at their headquarters and are in a little memorial garden outside um, their offices. I think today, she, if she was still, I'm pretty sure she'd be, her politics wouldn't have changed very much. Um, she probably have had something very interesting to say about gay marriage. She probably would have been involved in a lot of things um, related to um, anything relating to social justice, the death penalty she was against. She was arrested only once in her life, and that was in Boston, protesting the execution of Sacramento and Betty, who were anarchists. So I think she probably would have been, um, had a lot to say about uh, you know anti-war movement and peace movements and things like that, too, because that's what she was really involved in 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 the uh, 30s, 40s, and 50s. You're listening to the World Footprints Radio Book Club, and we're talking with author Kevin Fitzpatrick about his dynamic historical guidebook, A Journey into Dorothy Parker's New York. We're also joined by listener reviewers, 
Karen Powell and Sigrid Rich. Kevin, I'm I'm curious. You know, all of us uh, have have said that we didn't really know very much about Dorothy Parker. She's a great American writer, and why do you think this great American writer has gone so under-recognized and so under-appreciated for all of these years? Well, part of it is, you know, what you're taught in freshman English class or what is in vogue with, you know, professors and, and teachers at the time. Um, Parker was a contemporary of Hemingway and Fitzgerald. Um, she was enormously popular in her time. But what happens is a lot of professors will write her off because she was too popular. You know, she was writing about getting her heart broken or drinking or loving dogs or things like that. So she's not included in the great canon of American literature. And unless you're taking a class that includes, you know, American poetry or women writers or um, 20th century female writers, um, she, she won't get the same kind of recognition um, academically that um, some of her, her peers or her betters would have, like Sinclair Lewis or, or John O'Hara or um, you know, maybe other people that were in the New Yorker at the same time. So that's probably what happens. Usually what happens with, with Parker is people discover her in, in high school or college when someone turns her on turns them on to one of her short stories, and then they seek out the poems. Um, that's, that's what has been my experience. And, and now your book, I think, will be uh, a wonderful springboard to further learning opportunities about her. Um, you lead, and Sigrid will be interested in knowing this, you do lead guided tours around New York, um, guided Dorothy Parker tours. Is there a, a spot that you feel visitors can really get a sense of her? Is there a place that really just channels Dorothy Parker? The lobby of the Algonquin Hotel. I mean, it's a literary landmark, and... She lived there. She worked there. She had um, drinks and ate lunch with her friends there for 10 years. It's a, it's a landmark, and it's such a nice place to go to. Uh, free wireless. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And um, very cozy, very cozy. I do all the walking tours on DorothyParker.com um, for anyone that's interested. This list. I just gave one last Saturday to a group of people. Um, two of them are in from, from uh, uh, San Francisco, actually. Um, it's a great way to see the city because even if you are been to New York many, many times, you know, you will pick up little um, tidbits and, and I call them dining out stories. You can tell your friends about certain areas of like Rockefeller Center, which is where all the speakeasies used to be before Rockefeller Center was built in 1930. So there's a lot of things about not just Dorothy Parker history, but New York history and American history are all tied into um, to the walks, too. Mm-hmm. You you also founded the Dorothy Parker Society. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, what happened there is I started DorothyParker.com in 1998, which was um, a, a, a list of places that she lived and worked in the city that became the basis of the book. And within a very short time, it got very popular, and people wrote to me and said, we'd take us on you know, a tour of these places. And what happened is we ended up having such a great time that we wanted to do it again, and so the society started, and the Dorothy Park Society um, exists to promote her work and get people to keep reading her, writing about her, talking about her, putting on you know plays based on her work. Um, but we don't have meetings; we have parties because we want to be like Dorothy Parker, and she would never go to an organization that had meetings and presented academic papers. So we have um, monthly parties where we have vintage cocktails, um, we listen to jazz. 
from the 20s and 30s, and everybody dresses up in vintage clothes. That sounds like a good time, actually. <laughs> it resonates with me. Um, I, I just want to give in the last uh, couple of minutes that we have left, I want to go back to uh, both Karen and Sigrun and ask if uh, there are any other uh, questions they have for you, um, starting with Sigrid. Uh, no, I don't have any further questions at this time, but I will definitely be looking into uh, taking one of your tours in the near future. Thank you so much. Karen? I just have one quick question um, about her writing. Um, in the later years, it, you point out that it was growing and maturing, and I'm wondering if her lack of creative outlet was because of her fan base, if they weren't also growing and maturing, and were they not prepared for her um, to do the same? Well, Part of it, it's, it's related to the New Yorker magazine where she sold a lot of her short stories and fiction to. Um, they wanted her to keep writing, you know, funny, humorous pieces that she had written when she was in her 30s. And when she was in her 50s, they said, well, you don't write like you used to write. And part of it is because she got very political um, and she was a more mature person. So, you know, they were expecting a 55-year-old woman to write like she did when she was 30 and... You know, that's really one of the reasons that a lot of it um, dropped off. She just didn't feel like she wanted to write um, light verse anymore. Um, you know, getting your heartbroken stories, you know, in your 20s and 30s are one thing, but when you're pushing 60, um, it's not really um, a marketplace, I don't think, for her. Her her life was a bit scandalous. Um, is there anything you seem to have known a lot about her uh, before even writing this book through you know the, your founding of the society and what have you? Are there things though that you discovered uh, that surprised even you? Um, I think some of the things I discovered is that she was very um, um, very generous to her friends and to a fault. Um, she owned a Picasso that she gave away to Lillian Hellman. Um, she, you know, one of her um, nieces really admired a watch she was wearing, so she just took it off and gave it to her as a Cartier. Um, so she had a big heart, and um, so I think that really was something that I was kind of surprised to to learn. I thought she might be a little bit cold or jaded or, or something like that when she became famous, but quite the opposite. She, you know, was very um, outgoing and, and caring person. Uh, no, she was born uh, Dorothy. She had a um, a Jewish surname. Um, what was that? Rothschild. Yes, Rothschild. And so, how did that? How did she make the transition to to Parker? Was uh, Parker a name that she selected because of you know the the um, ethnic uh, surname, or is that a name that she married into? She married a guy named um, Eddie Parker, who was a stockbroker. And uh, they married in 1917, um, shortly before the war. And they divorced about five years later, and she kept his name. And she liked to say that she liked his clean-sounding Protestant name. Um, and she stayed Mrs. Parker for the rest of her life, even when she remarried in 1934 to another um, guy named Alan Campbell. She never took his name. Um, so she just kept the byline. But I think part of it is she just wanted to lose her um, identity of her parents and just, you know, kind of have get, kind of be a new person at that time. Did did any of her writings focus on some of the uh, uh, racial challenges? Or I mean, really, really focus on. I know she touched on uh, some of the um, uh, social injustices during her time. Um, but were there some controversial pieces that she created uh, that spoke to those issues? 
Yes, 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 Tanya, it's a very good question. She wrote a story called Arrangement in Black and White in the 20s, and it was a story about uh, two women at a dinner party, and there's a black singer who's at the party. Now, it's a very thinly veiled reference to Paul Robeson, who was um, very popular at the time. He was a very, very um, important Broadway star and the first big name on Broadway, um, African-American. So she was really attacking racial intolerance and prejudice at the time. When the New Yorker ran, they just thought it was a funny story. They weren't reading between the lines that what it was really about was prejudice and, and, and racism. And to see that in the mainstream white magazine in 1928 was pretty surprising. So when she did get involved in the civil rights movement in the 50s, she already had her credentials because she had already been, you know, poking fun of it or, or making light of it for a number of years. Um, and that, that, that story is in the, the portable Dorothy Parker. Okay. Kevin, I, I want to switch gears just very, very slightly um, because we do have, as you know, uh, two aspiring writers uh, on the show with us today, and I'm wondering um, what advice you have for them. I think a big part of, um, if you, well, first I'll talk about the, the creative side, and the creative side is, you know, read and write every day. Um, the business side is, you know, it's very important, I think, for networking. Um, one of the things I'm doing for myself in, in September is I'm going to be at the Brooklyn Book Festival, and I'm going to share a booth with another writer who we don't write the same thing, but we're in the same kind of genre of 1920s. Um, and I think it's important to network and get to know other writers and editors um, on a, you know, a social level and you know, kind of a professional level too. So that you can bounce ideas off and, you know, maybe trade ideas for, um, networking with, um, uh, you know, editors and publishers. Um, I, I think I'm a big fan of social media. Um, I follow a lot of writers. Um, I always want to, you know, read up on what they have to say on, you know, Twitter and Facebook and Pinterest. Um, even Instagram, you know, a lot of them are on there too. So I think all of those things, um, can really help a writer in 2013. And what about finding a an agent and uh, you know a publisher? Well, I'm kind of the worst person for that advice because um, I've they've approached me and um, uh, I haven't um, used an agent, um, but I have helped a couple of friends get agents. And what I do is I always recommend um, it, say you're writing a book about um, how to fix your house, go out and find what is the number one story, what's the number one book about fixing your house get the book, look in the credits, and find out who their agent is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because if the, author is, if the author is thanking their agent for selling a book about that subject, that you know that's the kind of author and agent that you want to you know, approach. Um, there are specific agents just for, say, um, erotic fiction, just like there's specific authors just for history or you know, any other kind of, you know, nonfiction genre. So you don't want to send, you know, your queries to agents that have no connections to to that field. So I think doing your, your legwork and, you know, if you want to be the next Susan Orlean, find out who Susan Orlean is rep by is, is a good start. Good deal. Well, Kevin, um, it, it's been uh, a pleasure. Uh, just real quick, you were former Marine, and so how did you go from Marine to, you know, active duty to what you're doing now? That's a big transition. Well, the, fir- the first thing they teach you is how to listen. <laughs> if you don't listen, you get in a lot of trouble, and you do a lot of push-ups. Um, 
but one of the things that the Marines, I think, other than the other service branches, is they really stress history, and uh, they really stress, you know, knowing your, you know, the traditions, and uh, you know, paying attention to where you come from. And um, I did a lot of writing. That was my job in the Marines. I was in public affairs, and I think, you know, they 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 really stress, um, you know, being uh, very organized, um, being very detailed. Um, and knowing, you know, where your mind, your P's and Q's. So I think the self-discipline I learned uh, in the service certainly got me through college and uh, definitely into the media in New York. Yeah, and you, and you certainly have to be disciplined uh, as, as a writer. A journey into Dorothy Parker's New York offers a rich exploration into the New York of past and a fresh way of exploring in present day. After reading this book, you were promised to see New York from a different angle. If you want to learn more about Dorothy Parker and experience her New York, we have a link to A Journey into Dorothy Parker's New York on our website at worldfootprints.com. And while there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter, view our new discovery tours, including scheduled trips to New Orleans and China, and follow us on your favorite social network. Thank you for joining us on this literary journey today, and many thanks to author Kevin Fitzpatrick for sharing Dorothy Parker's New York with us. And also, uh, thank you to our panel of listener reviewers, Karen Powell and Sigrid Rich. And of course, I have to also thank the man behind the scenes, my co-host and husband, Ian Fitzpatrick. If you'd like to join World Footprints Book Club as a listener reviewer, please email us at bookclub at worldfootprints.com. George Martin said, a reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. The man who never reads lives only one. So join us next time as we experience another life and a new world through a writer's pen on the next World Footprints Radio Book Club. Until we meet again, happy reading. This has been a presentation of World Footprints Media, all rights reserved. It's the Suffrage Wagon Centennial. Information Suffrage Wagon News Channel, suffragewagon.org. Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the World Footprints Radio Book Club. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. If you've ever wondered what goes on behind the scenes at our world's airports, you'll enjoy today's book club reading, Tales from the Tarmac. Author Claudia Oxy is a former runway model turned airline industry aficionado, and her new book offers great insight into the crazy world of airport terminals when ground staff and passengers intersect. Claudia's book is part tell-all and part etiquette guide, but Tales from the Tarmac is also all heart and humor. Claudia, thank you so much for joining us on today's World Footprints Radio Book Club. My pleasure. As I mentioned, your book is like a tell-all. What inspired you to uh, to really tell-all and compile the stories that you did? 
at the end of uh, cra- a crazy day, I needed to vent with my colleagues, and we'd compare all our bizarre stories. And this is what gave me the impetus to take a pen and put it on paper. It was a self-healing type of a um, mindset, I guess. But please do keep in mind I'm no longer in the airline industry. I still liaise between airlines and uh, crews where I house international airline crews worldwide in hotels. What has been the the feedback from some of your former um, colleagues who, uh, you know, may have had the the same type of uh, OMG moments that I had Mm -hmm. reading your book? Yay. (laughs) It's uh, good that someone is writing. Most of the books, I believe, when I did my research, they were experiences uh, flight attendants, and the stories were all in flight, which are fascinating because when you're in, you know, encapsulated in a tube, you must handle the situation right then and there. At an airport, um, people, they seem to morph from human beings into passengers once they walk through the airport door. And most of my colleagues, uh, they were very, very glad to see something in print about airport experiences. So part one of the book are some of my personal stories, and part two, I prevailed upon other station managers uh, to regale one or two of their stories. Now, what, what does a station manager do precisely? Um, every airline uh, is has their uh, a station is the city that it is in. So my station was JFK, and I was in charge of the entire ground operations, and that handled. Uh, and I had to handle all incoming passengers if there were problems when the aircraft landed. And then you have a a two-hour turnaround, and uh, you handle all the problems, and you have two hours to get that plane back in the air and back to its home base. Mm -hmm. And all the issues that come before, during, and after that. And I'm going to ask you to read, uh, you know, a passage um, from your book. Please, you know, set up the the section that you're going to read for us. Mm -hmm. Uh, This particular little... Uh, story is entitled a dildo dilemma <laughs> <laughs> and um, passengers carry all type of uh, little goodies on board and um, this one she this passenger very elite sophisticated passenger she put it in her suitcase she put this huge Dildo in her suitcase, oh, and um, as we are on the tarmac uh, waiting to depart, one of the last things I had to do all the time was go into the cockpit and uh, give the uh, weight and balance sheet to the captain and have a quick briefing and then get back off because on-time departures were extremely important, especially for an international carrier. So I'm on board in the cockpit, and one of the cargo handlers, ready to close the cargo doors, comes running up the stairs and to advise me that there was a buzzing sound coming from one of the suitcases. So the story involved how this all happened and um, then we get to where I tried to bring the passenger downstairs, which was mandated by law. 
So the little excerpt I am going to read is as follows. Security procedures mandated that the woman open her bag in front of the Port Authority police. All the onboard passengers that had starboard window seats, which is the right side of the aircraft, were in full view of this tarmac tryst. She was most defiant and refused to cooperate. Finally, after her advising her of the legal ramifications and the prospect of not allowing her back on the aircraft, she finally opened her suitcase. Lo and behold, there it was. Part of me blushed when I read that uh, mm-hmm. chapter, and uh, the other, you know, I spent some time picking my jaw up off the, the floor because I just kind of <laughs> in disbelief that... <laughs> it happens. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure it probably happens much more than than I as a passenger uh, am, and am aware of. You know, so... That that's a lesson. That's a learning lesson, and I'm just wondering, you know, how uh, how did you? What lessons did you learn, or has you know, working in the travel industry uh, changed how you travel today? Oh yeah, most definitely. Well, from my job, uh, that was from nineteen, I believe, nineteen eighty-five to two thousand. And um, at that time, there was a lot more respect for both passenger and the um, staff. Uh, so the difference, the, as far as I'm concerned, there has been, been somewhat of a uh, decline in on both sides of the fence. Mm-hmm. Passengers are not exactly uh, that respectful to to crew and to staff, and at the same time, the level of service, the quality of service has definitely faltered. Um, you know, there are so many changes in the past year after 9-11, and, uh, you know, downsizing, mergers, uh, layoffs, um, people are cramped in aircrafts now. So the service is different. The mentality of the passenger is different. Mm -hmm. So uh, at that time, it was still elegant to travel. And there was still protocol and dignity on both sides of the fence. And that is lacking in today's travel industry. I've been talking to author Claudia Oxy about her book, Tales from the Tarmac. And I'm also joined by a special uh, co-host, a listener reviewer who will also uh, help us keep this colorful conversation going. I'm pleased to introduce uh, Mary Jo Shackelford, a marketing and human resource consultant from Washington, D.C. Mary Jo, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. Hi, Mary Jo. Hi, Claudia. How are you? Okay, okay. So, do you uh, what? What are you? What were your thoughts when you were reading through this book, Mary Jo? Because I know you're an avid traveler. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, amazingly, some of those situations you could really relate to. But I have to say, in in reading the book, there were times that I was laughing out loud. Uh, times that I was just sitting there in disbelief that people could exhibit the kind of behaviors that you described, Claudia. Uh, a couple uh-huh. of them were just amazing to me. Um, and then, you know, as, as I finished the book, I got thinking, you know, wow, 
Uh, there's been, you know, moments of comedy where you are laughing. There has been drama. Uh, but it's almost like we, we see when we travel the worst of us instead of the best of us. There's something about travel that seems to bring the worst of us out. Did, did you experience that consistently when you were working in the airline industry? Yeah, there is, even today, there is a sense of entitlement by passengers. Um, again, once they walk through that door, uh, because they purchased a ticket and they just do feel uh, the airline owes them. And there, there is such a major, major difference. Again, the passengers back then, they were a bit more travel savvy than they are today. Um, and now, especially with the summer vacation coming, people need to educate themselves uh, in terms of how to help not only uh, their experience, but to make it better for everyone. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a whole aircraft. It's not just an individual, and I think people tend to forget that. You know, uh, there's one passenger, you walk in there as an individual, but there are 200 other people that come in sometimes with the same attitude. So the staff, yeah, they do have a more difficult time, but at the, mm-hmm. at also on the other hand, the because of mergers and because of uh, all the issues going on economically, I don't think the staffs are trained well enough to handle mm-hmm. uh, the loads. The, the huge right. of passengers, and in any public right. service, no matter if you're a, a waiter or waitress uh, or, or DMV, whatever it is, people walk in with an attitude, and you need mm-hmm. to know how to handle this. You mm-hmm. need to diffuse situations, and um, but you also need to be respectful of the passenger mm-hmm. as well. Right. Right. Well, the other part that I truly uh, enjoyed, and, and Tanya, I'm sure you picked up on the uh, stories in the back from Timber and, mm. and oh, Debbie. Yes, yes. Very, very, uh, when I was reading Debbie's story, it was just, uh, you know, your heart went out to them and was also palpitating with, is this really going, I mean, you know it, it happened because they're now here, but... In, in the moment, it was just uh, some very, very brave and unbelievable stories in, in that part of the book. Yeah, yeah. In fact, we were yeah. just with them this past weekend when we were uh, uh, down in Florida, and uh, I was telling her about the show, so hopefully, you know, she will be on chat line. But, um, yeah, people don't understand the... Um, difficulty in in leaving Iran and to this day right. it is still as difficult it is still as mm-hmm. difficult mm-hmm. but um, yeah the book has sometimes I was uh, a bit sardonic and the emotions were raw and mm-hmm. harsh at times but we all of us in the public service industry we are basically professional however our emotions are still our own, and we are still entitled to feel what we did. And I simply put it on paper. Mm-hmm. And I put it on paper. Yeah. Well, he, go ahead, Mary Jo. No, I was just going to say we thank you for going to those places that some of us, probably most of us, try to avoid it, you know, from an emotional standpoint. It's like I don't want to think about this. I don't want to deal with it. So 
you know, I, I just want to thank you for bringing that all to the forefront. And hopefully people that read the book will kind of learn about the attitude that you were just talking about, that when you come in, it's not just you. It's, it's, it's 200 people that are coming together as a community. And, you know, your, your behavior has to change and your attitude has to change to make that a successful experience. Oh, so uh-huh. thank you for that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, Claudia, I want to ask you, you know, we were just talking about uh, Timber and, and Debbie's stories. Can you, for our audience's sake, um, you know, benefit, set up the, the stories and kind of summarize some of the stories that uh, you and Mary Jo were just talking about? Yeah. Uh, Timber, uh, he was in the Iranian, he was a colonel in the Iranian Air Force, in, and he, of course, born and raised in Iran. And uh, because of his flight expertise, he had been chosen by the personally by the Shah of Iran um, and his wife uh, Farah to be their personal 747 pilot. And we all know what the conditions were back then in Iran. In fact, my sister lived there at that point in time. And uh, there was either extreme wealth or extreme poverty and no in-between. Having flown for the Shah, the the privilege and, and the money that was spent knowing and that was one of his uh, main issues when he spoke to us, knowing the poverty level of some people of the country in general. It was appalling to him. He was asked to do such ridiculous things, um, which he had to. Uh, he would fly Fada, the empress. She would purchase new shoes or uh, luggage. He would have to fly her to Paris to pick them up. So it would be an 11-hour round trip with fuel, etc., landing fees, and for her to pick up pocketbooks and shoes. Hmm. And uh, these were just the extravagant extremes that uh, the you know royal family went through. And yet he also knew that he had to leave because once uh, Khomeini took over... He still had his job uh, then, uh, believe it or not, for Khomeini, and uh, he was also, um, some of his friends were killed already because they knew too much, and he felt he was next. So the stories in the book, they are told by him. Uh, We were up in Helen, Georgia, a beautiful little village, reminiscent of Germany, of Munich, and we were up there, and he was telling us exactly uh, how this all went down, how he escaped, uh, how his life was at stake, how he'd be sitting in the cockpit with his first officer ready to kill him, and he knew it. And um, at the same time, he knew that he had to get his wife and children out of there, and of course, um, clandestinely. So this is what the those stories are all about, mm-hmm. how he got out, and how his wife got out without getting caught, and they did make it. So fascinating, you know, fascinating reading. Indeed, and you know, and I agree with with you, Mary Jo. Is one of those moments in the book where you know I virtually held my breath. 
Um, uh-huh. uh, it was emotional, and uh, and I had a few of those moments. And uh, another one is um, Claudia. The story about the, um, the woman. A, uh, well, the the that too, but the Italian, um, the gentleman uh-huh. in the wheelchair, um, who was abandoned by yeah. by ground yeah. staff. Can for the, again the benefit of our audience, can you share that scenario? Yes, uh, one of the passengers. This was when I first. Uh, started working for TWA, and I really didn't know anything. I was green. I was a newbie. And uh, I felt it is not my place to say anything uh, everyone else has experienced. I was not. But I saw a little, uh, sweet little senior citizen, a, um, what was his name, Geppetto, the, from Pinocchio, and he was sitting, he came in from a flight from, I believe it was, um, well, some, in the Midwest from Cleveland, if I'm not mistaken. And he was a wheelchair-bound passenger, did not speak a word of English. They took him off the aircraft, a gate agent, and he had a connecting flight, of course, to his hometown in Italy three hours later. They forgot about him. They left him. From the jetway, they put him, which was a few hundred feet away, a men's room door, and they put the wheelchair by the men's room, and nobody came to pick him up. No one took him to his connecting flight. And I kept passing, and I would see him, and he would wave and smile, and then eventually when I did walk over to him because I knew something was not right, uh, he started crying. The tears just flowed, and um, I held his hand, and, and I don't speak Italian, and but we were able to communicate that uh, what happened. Where was his flight? Gone. And... Um, so it was a very sad situation, uh, and it, it does happen. Mm-hmm. It does happen, especially with major, major busy hubs. Uh, one person thinks the other one is doing it, and then it doesn't get done. Right. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you have to take responsibility for yourself and um, ask questions. And, again, if you see something that isn't right, report it. Mm-hmm. Tell, and tell gate agents, you know, it, it's so mm-hmm. important when you have a language barrier. And eventually, I stopped what I was doing, and uh, whether or not it cost me my job, I took him and I made sure he got another flight on Alitalia. I personally took him over um, with a uh, hired car, and I personally put him on the flight and... Uh, him off. And, and you did the right thing. And you're listening to the World Footprints Radio Book Club, and we're talking with author Claudia Oxy about her book, Tales from the Tarmac. And uh, I'm joined by a very good friend and special co-host and listener reviewer, Mary Jo Shackelford. Mary Jo, I had, um, you know, I talked about the, these OMG moments, mm-hmm. um, the mm-hmm. passage that Claudia read about the women's toy that was uh, <laughs> that was discovered. Very good. I had to keep that out. And, and I had to share. I had to share that one. And me, interestingly enough, I was on a plane when I read that with my husband, and I just I was burst out laughing and had to share that immediately with him. I just it, the, the picture that you get in your mind was just very good. Yes. 
I, I actually can envision Doug's face. I mean, <laughs> yeah. share that with them. Um, but were, were there other? Did you have any other OMG moments when you when you read this book? I mean, oh, just... yeah. You, you know, Tanya. Gosh, there were were so many, uh, and you know, very eye opening moments. The experience with the Lockerbie flight uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, was just. You know, again, the on one hand, the sensitivity, Claudia, that that you showed in handling the family versus the insensitivity of the press to what was uh-huh. happening. Um, and I, I think Claudia mentioned the uh, flight with the young woman that was just put on the, uh-huh. the flight, I believe, from Romania and sent here thinking that she was going to Disneyland. Uh, yes. You know, and God bless yeah. you for all you did with that, and that must have just been heart-wrenching for you. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. you know, the the little boy uh-huh. that you had in your <laughs> office for hours and hours and hours. Yes. My little um, hip attachment. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, there were just so so many of those moments that you just kind of got enveloped by the story and you did such a wonderful job of bringing each one of those to life, So, at least for me, so that the emotion that you must have been feeling and the other person was feeling came through so very clearly. I wanted to put um, readers in uh the story. I wanted them to feel the emotions that I felt. Again, be they be it good or bad, ugly or indifferent. Uh, I was mm-hmm. harsh at times, um, but I wanted the the reader to be involved in the story and visualize and be in the moment at that point in time. And and I hope I accomplished that. Whether or not some of the readers agreed with me and. Some of them did not like my mode of handling certain issues, but um, this was my objective, you know, to expose people to behind the scenes, what they do not know or hear about, what uh, your average passenger will never experience. And this was, the again, the premise of writing the book, mm-hmm. you know, and facts are facts, be they harsh mm-hmm. or unfair. I, I have to say, Claudia, that I, I felt as a passenger who has traveled with, um, you know, not a lot of obnoxious people, but I've been subjected to obnoxious people. I felt vindicated um, when you handled the uh, the, the bridal com- uh, couple um, the way you did. <laughs> I felt mm-hmm. very vindicated. <laughs> yeah, I mean, go figure. You know, why would anyone in their right mind? Subject subject themselves to such discomfort, and and everyone else sitting around them. But yet, in the ground manual, in the airport ground manual, every uh, airport has their own operating manual, the ground operating manual. And for the life of me, I knew there was no passage in there that said wedding gowns are not allowed. <laughs> So I had no choice but to, okay, you silly little woman. Well, not little, but you silly woman, no. <laughs> and um, have fun with this, you know. And I can tell you, ladies, I had gotten uh, feedback from certain uh, obese societies that literally 
told me I hated my job. How would I, you know, like it if that were, if I, you know, the shoe was on the other foot and I would never have allowed it. I mean, you dress comfortably. You don't dress like a slob, but you dress comfortably. And um, you don't like fat people. All of this feedback I got on that one story, it's just amazing, which just goes to show you people are people. They're, they think differently. Um, and uh, truth, and I, you know, it does, I'm sorry, truth, dot just in fiction mm. when you're in the public service yeah. industry. And I, I mean, I, I don't think that your uh, your writing that, of that story was a slam um, no. on people. But you know, what I took away from that was um, uh, their obnoxious behavior. They were very uh, rude, and um, you know, and I, I guess I can't help myself as as a lawyer. I don't like. Injustice. I, I, I have no tolerance for any sense of injustice, and I just felt that that couple was being very uh, unjust. Um, and, you know, I have to ask you, you have so many stories, um, and I'm sure you, you cut some stories from this book. How did you make your selection on what to include and what not to include? I think, uh, you know, there will be a Tales from the Tarmac 2 down the road. Oh, good. Yay. 16 years worth of uh, stories. They, you know, you, you want to do it before dementia sets in and put it in paper. <laughs> but um, I just chose the ones that uh, evoked a, an, a, an emotion from deep down, you know, emotions that I didn't think I had. Mm-hmm. Uh, emotions in, you know, when a child is involved, when a senior citizen involved, when a mentally challenged person is involved, um, and then Lockerbie, uh, all of these things. When I went home, and if I cried on my way home, or if I laughed on my way home, uh, to vent or, or, you know, just shared it with friends and family. I knew, and I wanted to see their reaction. Uh, so I knew that these are the stories I needed to put in print because they are unbelievable. Right. Well, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. glad it's going to be uh, Tales from the Tarmac, uh, too, because I'd certainly like to have you back. And there's a number of questions uh, we didn't have a chance to, to ask you today. Um, so, there is an open invitation for you next time, oh. my dear. <laughs> uh, but Tales oh, from the... it is my pleasure. Oh, thank you. Tales from the Tarmac takes you on an emotional journey. You'll laugh out loud at some of the outrageous behavior of passengers. You'll find yourself cursing at some of the inappropriate behavior of airport staff. And you'll shed tears as you relive tragic aviation events. Tales from the Tarmac offers a crash course on the daily workings behind the ticket counter and provides some takeaways to help passengers travel more responsibly. There's so much more to share than we've been able to explore here, and so we have a link to Tales from the Tarmac on our website at worldfootprints.com. And while there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter and view our new discovery tours, including scheduled trips, to China, Italy, Hawaii, and a new Galapagos tour that's just been added. And, of course, follow us on your favorite social network. Thank you for joining us on this literary journey today, and many thanks to author Claudia Oxy for sharing Tales from the Tarmac with us, and also to my special co-host today, Mary Jo Shackelford. 
And of course, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't thank the man behind the scenes, my co-host and husband, uh, Ian Fitzpatrick. If you'd like to join the World Footprints Book Club as a listener reviewer, please email us at bookclub at worldfootprints.com. George Martin once said, A reader lives a thousand lives before he dies. The man who never reads lives only one. So join us next time as we experience another life and a new world through a writer's pen on the next World Footprints Radio Book Club. Until we meet again, happy reading. This has been a presentation of World Footprints Media, all rights reserved. Visit the Galapagos Islands, meet polar bears in Canada, sip wine in northern Italy, explore the Hawaiian Islands aboard a luxury yacht, and stand face-to-face with China's terracotta soldiers. Explore the world on a journey of a lifetime with World Footprints Discovery Tours. These tours give a unique view of the world in an intimate, small group setting with the freedom to immerse yourself in local culture, learn, and make... Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.